top 20% in Australia have over 90 times the wealth of the lowest 20%. Certainly if you go back 100 years, we're better than we were then. But more recently, we've become more unequal. I think the problem of basically having a segregated schooling system by class in Australia is getting worse. When we talk about inequality in our society, there's a lot of focus on issues like gender and race inequality. However, we don't seem to give the same attention to class inequality. Why is that? Is class inequality getting better or worse? In this new series, we'll be looking at class inequality in Australia. We'll talk to experts across different fields about how class inequality impacts our society in areas such as politics, education and journalism. Our guests on this series are Chair of Monash Sustainable Development Institute, John Thwaites, author Bree Lee, Senior Reporter for the Saturday Paper, Rick Morton, and historian Dr Tony Moore. Welcome to our look at class inequality on What Happens Next. Hi, I'm John Thwaites and I'm the Chair of the Monash Sustainable Development Institute at Monash University and Climate Works Australia, also part of the Institute. And uh, I've just led a project called Transforming Australia, which has highlighted the growing wealth inequality in Australia. John Thwaites, welcome. What do you see as the moral or ethical problems with class inequality? Well, the, the moral uh, aspect of that is that it's totally unfair for one group of people to get unequal access to all the opportunities that another group has. And I think it goes back to our fundamental beliefs in uh, humans as being equal, uh, whether it's the Declaration of Human Rights or many religions have a general underpinning that humans uh, morally should all get a fair go and an equal go. Uh, so I see it as very deep and, and a very moral issue. Obviously, there's lots of different types of inequality, but if you think about class inequality in Australia, do you think we're getting better or worse over time? That's a, a really interesting question because uh, certainly if you go back 100 years, we're better than we were then. But more recently, we've become more unequal. Mm. So I think the story of Australia was uh, we were world leaders in uh, giving uh, middle-class people, working people, rights, minimum wage, uh, those sorts of things uh, in the early uh, 20th century, right up until probably the last 20 years. Obviously, the one glaring omission was our Indigenous community, who have never had equal rights and uh, were treated appallingly uh, through most of the 20th century. But for the non-Indigenous community, it was a very good story of progress. The last 20 years though, has been that period where the trickle down economic theory has dominated a lot of thinking around the world, economic liberalism, which has really just been another way to say, transfer wealth from the bottom to the top. If Australia continues down its current trajectory, let's assume we change nothing. We don't change anything to do with taxes or welfare and we just continue down the path that we're on, what do you think Australia looks like in the next, say, 50 or 100 years when it comes to um, class inequality or, or socioeconomic inequality? 
Well, it looks more unequal. And that means it's not the Australia that uh, I think most Australians would want to live in. It looks more like the United States. And I don't think any of us want to go down that track where a, f a few billionaires, now nearly trillionaires, uh, own a huge part of the wealth of the country. And not only the wealth, a disproportionate amount of the power. And Australia has prided itself on being a relatively egalitarian society. And by comparison with, once again, the US, we have been. But what we've seen in the last uh, 20 years is that the share of wealth owned by the top 20% has increased and the share of wealth of the bottom 20% has decreased. Mm -hmm. I think the top 20% now have something like 90 times the wealth, 90 times the wealth of the bottom 20. And that's, you know, that's not just a figure on a, on a spreadsheet, that is power, it's access to uh, good services. And over time, that level of inequality drives conflict and it reduces the social contract. The, the, the feeling that we all have is that we wanna get in and help the country and do the best by it. Once again, in the United States, I think you've seen that breaking down of the social contract and a lot of the conflict that they have, they're a lot connected to race, but also class. So that's not the track we wanna go down in Australia. Obviously, different types of inequality can feed into each other. Racial inequality can then impact on um, social inequality, you know, economic inequality. What do you see as some of the main things feeding into class inequality in Australia? How, how do we untangle that knot? Well, wages are a good start. So, you know, working people, working class people uh, haven't had a, a pay rise since about 2012. I mean, wages have been very flat for nearly a decade. So that is one factor. But I think something else has come in much more in the last 20 years or so, and that's the casualisation of the workforce, where more and more people are not in a full-time job, they're in a casual job. And you know, a lot of focus of that has been in the so-called gig economy. And so people, you know, Deliveroo, riders, these sorts of things. But actually it's coming in a lot of other areas too, including universities, uh, where in the past, uh, people would see a full-time and a long-term career opportunity. Now, so many people are getting short-term contracts. And that means that uh, these people are a lot less secure in their work. They get less income. They don't have sick leave or uh, holiday pay. And I think that's feeding into a, a class divide now, which is you know, more about the type of work you're on than whether you're in what were traditional uh, working class or middle class occupations. So some people in you know, what might have been classed as uh, working class occupations, more trades, have been protected historically by unions. And a lot of them are men too. And so men have traditionally had that union protection. A lot of the workers in the casual area are women, not unionized, they don't have protections. And that's a sort of a, a new lower class, if you like, uh, that's become embedded in the last 20 years or so. So I think we have to move away from that casual type of employment to more secure employment. And that's quite a shift in, in thinking for 
employers and for society? We talk a lot about inequality now. Um, yeah, equality in many ways seems to almost be the uh, almost the religion of our modern society. It's it's the thing that we focus on a lot. We see as the ultimate good and goal. One thing I've noticed, though, when we talk about inequality in our society is there is a lot of focus on um, gender inequality. There is a lot of focus on racial inequality. There is a lot of focus on things like homophobia. We don't seem to give the same attention to class inequality. It, it doesn't seem to have the same social traction. Why do you think that is? Well, it's partly because... Uh things have changed, that demography has changed so that uh, traditional division of labour between sort of workers in traditional working class jobs and then uh, capital and the middle class, some of that's broken down. And so, as I said, uh, a lot of the inequality is being uh, suffered now by people who aren't in what were classed as traditional working class jobs. They are in the, uh, these casualised jobs, new jobs in hospitality or the gig economy. So those traditional class uh, classifications are potentially less relevant, but it doesn't mean there's any less inequality. Mm. What we're seeing is that people who might have come uh, and be in areas that, in white-collar jobs, but they're still in very low-paid, insecure white-collar jobs. So I think it's better to focus on what people are actually getting in terms of their wages and conditions if you're, we're going to tackle that level of um, that type of um, inequality. And I, I think in our cities, for example, we're seeing you know, changes in where people live. Traditionally, you had working class suburbs, middle class, upper class suburbs. Uh, you've seen that the inner suburbs, which were working class, now becoming much more uh, the home of the wealthy. And so, once again, some of those traditional place-based categorizations don't apply in the same way. And we're seeing uh, levels of inequality now spread throughout the suburbs with people in insecure work uh, or um, not getting as much work as they would want. And they could be spread anywhere around Melbourne, but particularly now more in the outer suburbs. Rick Morton is an author and the senior reporter for the Saturday paper. Rick discusses the impact class inequality will have on journalism, as well as our democracy. Here's journalist and author Rick Morton. Rick Morton, you've written quite a bit on the role of class in Australia. What impact do you think class inequality has on journalism? I think it has such huge explanatory power. And like class is, I think, the most important thing in uh, journalism and, and class is intersectional. So it, it applies to race and disability and all these other kind of privileges or lack thereof. But it's really about money and the concentration of power. And, you know, when you're a journalist, you are tasked with telling other people's stories. Um, you are meant to be able to account for their lives. And increasingly, uh, this is not just my view, but it's backed up by research. Increasingly, there are fewer and fewer journalists from um, kind of underserved backgrounds, minority backgrounds um, who grew up in poverty, who are working class, um, from other ethnicities um, with disabilities. And when you don't have those voices in the room um, or even have them, you know, in your own head, 
you miss stuff and you you miscalculate and you tell stories that are not necessarily true, even though you might be acting in perfectly good faith, you actually don't have the experience to try and get across what are really nuanced points about the way people live. And so I think, you know, class, people think class is just about money, right? Um, but it's about power. It's about cultural cachet. It's about influence. It's about confidence. When you grow up with nothing, um, or you kind of grew up in a family that's broken or your parents are really smart in a street sense, like my mum was, but they don't grow up reading quote unquote, the right books. Um, you lack the confidence to kind of make your own arguments in the world. And that takes a long time to learn. So this thing has many, many tentacles, I think. And, and mm. it's very easy to miss if you're not from that world. I remember reading in uh, a review, I think it was in the monthly about your book, your first mm. book that said, class is about access and I guess that that's what you're saying that it does open doors and then it also gives you the confidence that you are allowed to walk through those doors yeah it's it's kind of like I mean when you think about what you know if you grew up in even just a middle class family um, but the the higher up the ladder you go um, the less friction there is in your everyday life Um, and that's really how I like to look at it it's about friction so you know I've been pretty successful in my career so far I'm 34 um but God, it could have gone any other way so many different times along the way. And there were so many people that had to come into my life at the right time um, to, to stop me from going in the wrong direction or from giving up, to be quite honest, because it was really hard. And there's often this kind of, you know, if you come from nothing and you're sheltered like I was, and then you have to, you know, move from the country to the city, which is another type of barrier, and then you don't have any money, so you've got to work while you're doing university and you don't know how to have Uh, the same discussions that people who grew up in quote unquote the right households have then there are often um, the stress of that is its own mental illness it's its own kind of physiological malady and so you're trying to do all of these things and do the bare minimum that other people have who might not have the same concerns and so it's a really it's a very real physical problem rather than just a theoretical mind game but it does all of those things then end up affecting your confidence so you don't end up having rightly or wrongly, the same level of access that other people do in, in from, you know, from, um, you know, more well-off backgrounds. I feel like we talk a lot about inequality at the moment. It's, it's almost the topic du jour. We, mm-hmm. we talk about racism and sexism. I feel like we talk a lot less about class inequality, though. Why Look, do you think that is? It's, it's a really good question because, and I, I'm not one of these people who thinks that class is the only answer. And obviously I write about it because A, I grew up poor, um, but also I'm white and and, and I'm able-bodied. So I don't have the same um, ability, nor should I, to write about these other issues. But I think, you know, we've got really talented, smart people who are disabled, who are from different ethnic backgrounds, um, from different other kind of minority, minority groups. But class is a really tough one because to come... You know, typically, and I don't want to say this as a kind of general rule, but if we're having those other discussions, generally speaking, it's from people who've come from well-off backgrounds themselves, even if they're from different races or um, they're disabled, you still don't get to hear a lot of those stories from people who come from nothing. And that's really, that's down to a bunch of things, including education, um, including the type of kind of um, parenting that you can get in those households as well. I mean, I was just so lucky in so many ways to be born oriented, I guess, the way I am towards learning because, you know, mum thought education was important, but um, 
wasn't particularly well educated herself and really the one thing I knew to do was to work and to work hard but beyond that there weren't any clues um, and so I think it's really difficult to have the class conversation if you don't have the representation um, even in a little kind of small way in these circles where decisions are made and that's the hardest thing about vaulting people um, into that position is A, that they get there and B, that they remember what it was like where they came from because it's, it's very easy, I think, if you're not, if you've not got a foot in the world you left behind, which I do, to want to see it all go away and, and not be reminded. Imagine Australia in 100 years. We don't make any changes to the way we deal with class. Mm. We don't do anything to try to reduce class inequality, the causes of it, the knock-on effects of it. What does our society look like to you? It, it worries me a lot because there, there has been a concerted effort, I think, in, particularly in the last decade, but over the last few decades, to kind of introduce this kind of Americanized version of uh, the, the social state into Australia. Um, the GP co-payment was an example of, you know, a co coalition government trying to insert policy that was kind of the thin edge of the wedge when it comes to privatisation of healthcare services. Now, no one in their right minds, unless you are an ideologue um, or a libertarian who, you know, wants to drink and drive and not wear a seatbelt and um, go hang everyone else, no one in their right minds thinks that we have a bad healthcare system in this country because the state pays for most of it. No one. Um, and, and there are people who get to access those services who are actually quite well off but know that they would be floored by a $40,000 medical bill, um, which is what people routinely get in the States. Um, and so if those campaigns are successful, and, and the problem here is that we're not, you know, the Labor scare campaign in 2016 was that the Libs were going to privatise Medicare. That was just wrong, right? Mm. That's not the argument that's going to win you the election. The argument is that we need to stop every little skirmish um, because you lose those things once, you lose them forever. And so... We've got a persistent entrenched underclass in Australia of about 700,000 people, according to the Productivity Commission. They're there every year regardless. They might be different people, but it's about that number. And then you've got um, the working poor and the working class and the people on um, the welfare system who just cannot catch a break and who are actually pummeled into the earth further by these punitive kind of, again, a system built on distrust. It's like we cannot trust them with our money. And so if we don't do anything about it and if we don't bring people from those backgrounds into positions where decisions are actually made, um, even benign decisions like those in the public service who are trying to imagine what it's like to come from these backgrounds, if you're not from there, you actually don't get it and you're going to make policy that gets stuff wrong, even when you're not trying to do people over or, or when the ministers are not trying to kind of scrounge more money from the budget, you're just going to get it wrong. And so these little things add up over a long time and you know there was a time when pretty much anyone in Australia who wanted a job a good well-paying job could get one um, and it was a smaller place and you know the factories paid well and it wasn't as urbanized um, education was free um, and those things are not the case anymore and increasingly you get the ripples of discontent when you get those settings wrong and you know I'm not one to you know magic into existence a dystopia but there will be a point if you don't get these things right 50 years 100 years down the track where you do have the same underclass that you've got in america which to me is a failed state because of it what is the role of class in education 
Our next guest is Bree Lee. Bree is an author and freelance writer. Her third book, Who Gets to Be Smart, is an interrogation of the adage, knowledge is power, and looks at how Australia's educational system exacerbates social stratification. Here's author Bree Lee. Hi, I'm Bree, Bree Lee, uh, and I'm now an author, um, but I'm also a legal researcher, an activist, and sort of freelance journalist based in Sydney. You've written a book that is about many things, but one of the key themes is about class inequality and the impact that that has on education. What do you see as some of the most striking and often unrecognised effects that class has on our approach to education? Well, something I was shocked and really saddened to find out in the research for this book is that it starts from really young children. Uh, So one in five Australian kids are not meeting their developmental milestones when they start grade one. Um, And, you know, regardless of where, you know, any individual sort of economic politics lay, if they consider equality of opportunity or equality of outcome, um, I think we can agree that 20% of children um, not meeting their developmental milestones before they even start is, is equality of nothing. Um, And it just really struck me um, with the announcements made recently by the government to sort of increase a bit of what they call childcare funding. Um, It just seems to me so shocking that in Australia we consider children having a right to free education from age five and up. And for some reason, early childhood education from ages five and below is considered welfare. And, you know, every decade that passes, we have more and deeper research that shows us how the first five years of our lives just can shape the entire rest of our lives. And one in five kids, um, because of socioeconomic factors, as well as other factors, of course, cultural, racial background, postcode, all the rest, but in particular, the one we could fix um we just don't and children are (laughs) suffering because of it and it just you know it's so hard for them those one in five to ever really catch up um when they start on the back foot in these systems it's really difficult to make up for that lost ground and that sort of seed of the problem then just continues uh and I just was really shocked to find researching this book that um pretty much since the Howard years it's just been getting worse Um, I'm not seeing anything that convinces me that um, the problem is lessening. I think the problem of basically having a segregated schooling system by class in Australia is getting worse. nothing to change it if we just continue on the way that we are what does Australian society look like in 50 to 100 years I don't know about 50 to 100 years <laughs> um, the question will be whether global warming has actually been dealt with by then I feel like um, but like maybe just a few less decades than that we're already at the stage where 80 percent of kids who have some kind of extra needs are in state schools compared to private schools So these sort of broad categories that the government use to identify children who need a bit of extra help, um, things like 
if English is their second language. Um, if they're in a very small or a very regional school, if they come from an Indigenous background, a whole, you know, if they have a disability, these categories. 80% of the kids who need extra help are in state schools, which typically, overwhelmingly, are significantly less funded than private schools. And that drift is getting worse. And this attitude in Australia that is held by, I would say, the majority of our large middle class um, is that if you can afford to send your kids to private school, why wouldn't you? Like that, that you would be crazy to still send them to a public school if, if you can possibly afford private school. And what that means is this drift happens. You know, one of the sort of, I think I could spend the rest of my life researching and writing about aspiration the aspirational middle class and aspiration mm. can be an incredible thing. But in my opinion, the argument I sort of make in this book is that as every sort of 10 more years passes with our current education system, the way it is, that aspirational component of the middle class means that people just are busting their guts and working really, really hard to try and afford school fees for their kids for private school. And the people who can't afford it are just being left more and more behind, leaving basically a growing, <laughs> there's just this growing chasm between the two. Um, and I just didn't even realize that we're at the stage now where it's almost half of secondary school students are in private versus public schools. Um, mm. Like that is, how did it get so bad? And I don't think Australians realize that, that other OECD nations are not like that, you know, in the UK and in, most of Scandinavia, you're talking about single digit percentage of kids who go to private schools. You know, that that real split down the middle hasn't been allowed to get as bad as it is here. Many of our nation's leaders come from a similar background, the best, most expensive private schools, the top universities. What are we missing out by making it harder for people from outside this group to get a seat at the table? In our next episode, we will take a look at some of the ways we need to address class inequality in Australia and some of the things that are being done about it right now. We'll catch you next time on What Happens Next.